Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to Fairy Gospel, a podcast where we discuss Disney classics from yesterday, today, and Tomorrowland from the perspectives of queer people of faith. But first things first, roll call. I'm Dustin, he, him. I identify as a gay man and spiritually as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm Scott. I identify as a he, him, and I identify as an agnostic Christian. And Scott, you were the first person to pull a fairy gospel hat trick. This is your third time. Third time's a charm. Welcome back. Time's Wow. (laughs) I can't believe it. I'm the first one. Yes. The first one to come back for three helpings of fairy gospel. You were here for... Hercules, you're here for The Emperor's New Groove, and now you're back for, do you want to introduce what you're back for? I'm so excited. I am back for The Little Mermaid. Yes, yes. But before we get into that, how about you let us know how you've been since the last time we chatted? I think it's been a couple months. So how have you been since The Emperor's New Groove? Oh, I have been doing very well. I just bought a new house and I'm renovating it with my partner right now. And we're a little stressed, but very blessed. And can't wait to have that home done so we can feel less stressed for sure. And hopefully uh, you get to come down to good old Kentucky and visit us really soon. Yes. Now that I know where it is, we discussed it. Well, it's not that I didn't know where it was before, but now I know exactly where it is on the map. As we discussed before coming on the podcast, the new mm. meme on how to find Kentucky. It is the f- piece of fried chicken in the plate that is Louisiana. Is it Louisiana? No, Tennessee is the plate. Louisiana is some other <laughs> Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. Tennessee is the plate. <laughs> it's, it's beneath, it's beneath us. You know, Kentucky is the one state in our nation that touches the the most amount of other states from all the different directions. You know, the two states that touch the least? <laughs> touch the least? Uh, yeah, Alaska and Hawaii. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and also another little bit of fun fact that I learned from middle school, national, ge- not just uh, geog- world geography, is Alaska <laughs> is the northernmost state, the easternmost state, and the westernmost state because the Illusion Islands go around the globe and almost touch Russia. So it is everything but the southernmost oh. state. Which is Hawaii, wow, I believe. that's great. <laughs> I think that is Hawaii. Yeah, I think that's true. We are just giving all of the listeners a great geography lesson about our country. Yes. So. But we, we were just making sure that they can gain their bearings because we are about to go under the sea, out from the land and into the ocean deep to discuss what you just said, the Little Mermaid. And I am so excited. Uh, I was actually a little bit nervous planning for this because this is such a canon of Disney, of like Disney life. Like if you are a Disney nerd, if you're any form of Disney fan, The Little Mermaid has to rank near the top, if not the top of your favorite Disney movies. And it is the iconic movie that ushered in the Disney Renaissance, which brought us some of the classics that we have today. And also this is our childhood right now. Like I am a child of yeah. the 80s. You're a child of the early 90s or something. Yeah. I can't remember how much older I am. I, I'm you're a year older than me, Dustin. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> we're in the we're in the same we're in the same demographics. But no, this movie is really exciting because I believe it's the first fairy tale movie 
that came out after Sleeping Beauty. So they had not done a fairy tale princess style movie. And Oliver and Company was the movie that came out before this movie. And the producers at Disney were really apprehensive about the revenue that this movie was going to bring in. And towards the beginning of production, they were like, oh, you know, this is going to be a flop. You know, we're not really sure how this is going to go. But then towards the end of production, uh, one of the main producers on the movie was like under the impression that it was going to kill in the box office. And it almost was a blockbuster film because you have to sell $100 million inside the United States for it to be considered a blockbuster. It sold 84.8 million dollars in the box office in the what the early like late 80s early 90s. Yeah, so, so that's, I mean that's, that's real te- money. That's not like downloads, that's not streams, that's like tickets in hand, butts in seats kind of money. Yeah, and it like far far surpassed Oliver and Company. I think the story is really interesting. I think the idea of mermaids and magic and you know, people probably were aware of the Hans Christian Andersen story that accompanied the origin of this movie. So I felt like that probably gave it a little bit of an extra push on top of it being the first like princess fairy tale movie that Disney had produced since 1956. I mean, that's wild. 1956. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And you're stealing some of my background thunder. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. You're actually adding a lot more to it than I found in from the Disney fandom. But before we get into our discussion, we have to bestow our gospels on this episode. So that way we can have that little bit of extra fairy dust to kind of bless the listeners out there and also give them something for their mouse ears to listen for. So Scott, before we bestow our gospels, do you want to introduce what gospel you chose to bestow upon this episode? Yes. So I have chose independence. And I have chosen the gospel word of want. And there's this very specific reason why I chose the word want, and we'll get into it a little bit further. But Scott, who would you like to go first as far as bestowing the Gospels? I think I will go first, since mine's the longest. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. So I I can't wait to hear it. All right. Independence. The fact or state of being independent. Ariel wants to explore her independence and learn more about the world above her. I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-C-E. Independence. Yes, yes, yes. Independence. That's a great word because that is what she's seeking. That what is what she deserves. And that is what is hard for her father to come to terms with is finally giving her independence. So that is an amazing word. I'm glad you chose it. I'm excited for yours too. I can't wait to hear it. So mine is want. Noun. A desire for something. Ariel has more than a want. She has a need to fully understand herself and to find her place in the sun. W-A-N-T, want. Yay, so there we go. We Yay! Have we have bestowed our gospels on this episode. And so, Scott, you you gave a bunch of very great facts about The Little Mermaid, but I want to hear your personal connection to The Little Mermaid. I think this is another one that you chose that you wanted to do. So why did you want to discuss The Little Mermaid today? There's so many reasons. So I'm a water baby. I love being in the water. I was a competitive swimmer my entire life. So The Little Mermaid was such like a fantasy for me because we'd be in the pool, we'd be swimming, we would be out 
out, you know, playing with friends. I lived in Rhode Island when this movie came out. So we used to go to the beach all the time. So that fantasy world of being in the ocean and being underwater and being comfortable in the water to me was like something that I think resonated with really deeply and emotionally. And who wouldn't want to be a mermaid? I mean, honestly, or a merman, a mer person, you know, let's, let's not pigeonhole anyone into any specific category, but you know, I think that it's such a fantasy that people can have and, I think that, you know, it's like a dream state. So it's one of those things that goes into, I love Greek mythology and that's why Hercules was such an interesting movie for me and I and I had a love for that. But I think The Little Mermaid kind of ties into that world too with like King Triton being potentially like a Poseidon-esque character and just a lot of magic and cool like cinematography and big music and really catchy songs. I mean, this whole movie is such an iconic piece in the Disney canon that getting to do this with you is very exciting for me. Oh, well, I'm glad that you're able to discuss it with me today. And I, of course, am a water baby as well. I'm also a water sign. I'm a Scorpio. And it turns out Ariel's also a Scorpio water sign. So that's fitting. So it, I have that. Oh, with her. yeah. So I guess they base the princess's birthdays on their release date. And since she was released on November 17th, 1989, that is considered her birthday, and that is a Scorpio. And so she's in good company with Belle. She's in good company with Mickey and Minnie. She There's just a lot of Scorpios that bring a lot of powerhouses to mm-hmm. the Disney franchise. So she's in good company. I'm glad to have her on board as a fellow Scorpio. And it makes sense because she's very strong-willed, does what she wants. She's very goal-oriented, and she just is a strong woman. And that that is everything that encompasses a Scorpio or any, any sort of strong-willed person. And I just remember also like being in the swimming pool And one of the first things that you emote when you're in the swimming pool as a child, especially if you're a queer child, is you're that mermaid. You you swim around with the mermaid stroke. Even outside of the pool, I pretended to be a merman or a mermaid. And that (laughs) actually led to me kind of cracking my head open because I tied a sheet around my waist super, super tight. And I kind of was like talking to my brother and be like, look, I'm a mermaid. I'm a mermaid. And he pushed me over just kind of like to tell me to shut up kind of jokingly. And because I had no use of my legs, I fell and hit my head. Oh, my God. On a a coffee table and cracked it open. And now it's a fun story, but at the time, but at the time it was kind of scary and literally scarring. But at this point, it's one of those fun stories because it's such a deep connection to this character that she had this want, she had this need to fulfill herself, to learn outside of herself and find a better understanding. And I'm sure little kids can relate to that, especially queer little kids before they even understand what the concept of queer is. They can relate to her on a level that they aren't even aware of at that time. For sure. I think that's awesome. And also something to tie in, I think like this storyline and kind of how Ariel progresses throughout this movie is such a great theme for, you know, Pride Month, you know, right now we're recording this in June. And I think that's something really awesome too to like kind of dive into because I feel like her storyline is identifiable by so many broad scope people across the world. It's it's great. Exactly. And before we get into kind of our discussion, I just want to go to my favorite Disney wiki, disney.fandom.com to kind of lay some stats on there. In addition to the ones you already gave us earlier, which were in addition to these, like they didn't even mention some of the stuff you mentioned. So I'm glad that you brought them up. But here we go. So it says The Little Mermaid is a 1989 musical comedy fantasy animated film produced by Walt Disney Feature Animation. 
animation. It was first released on November 17th, 1989 by Walt Disney Pictures, but returned to theaters on November 14th, 1997. The 28th animated feature in the Disney animated canon, the film is loosely based on the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the same name. It also marked Disneyland's 35th anniversary one year after it's released. And it goes on to say the story centers on a young mermaid named Ariel who's captivated by the world upon the surface when she falls in love with a human prince. She makes a deal with a villainous sea witch to become human herself and earned his love before the agreed times run out. And then it goes on to say, The Little Mermaid was an unmitigated success for the studio, being praised for its animation, storytelling, and music by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. The movie grossed over $100 million in the U.S. box office upon its initial release. Oh, so it was a box office hit because it got $100 million. Oh, okay. So then it goes... I'm, I'm glad to be wrong. I'm glad yeah. to be wrong. <laughs> and then it won two Academy Awards for Best Song, Under the Sea, and Best Original Music Score. It is credited as the film to have started the historic Disney renaissance, an era that had breathed life back into the animated feature film medium after a string of competent but only inexpensive successful animated films such as The Aristocats, The Rescuers, and The Great Mouse Detective. In 1986, The Great Mouse Detective co-director Ron Clements discovered a collection of Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales while browsing a bookstore. He presented a two-page draft of a movie based on The Little Mermaid to CEO Michael Eisner, who passed it over because at that time the studio was in development on a sequel to Splash, but the next day, Walt Disney Pictures boss Jeffrey Katzenberg greenlit the idea for possible development alongside Oliver and Company. That year, Clements and the Great Mouse Detective co-director John Musker expanded the two-page idea into a 20-page rough script, eliminating the role of the mermaid's grandmother and expanding the roles of the merman king and the sea witch. However, the firm's plans were momentarily shelved as Disney focused its attention on who framed Roger Rabber and Oliver and Company as more immediate releases. Then in 1987, songwriter Howard Ashman became involved with Mermaid after he was asked to contribute to Oliver and Company. He proposed changing the minor character Clarence, the English butler crab, to a Jamaican Rastafarian crab and shifting the music style throughout the film to reflect this. At the same time, Katzenberg, Clements, Musker, and Ashman changed the story format to make Mermaid like an animated Broadway musical. Ashman and Alan Menken teamed up to compose the entire soundtrack. In 1988, with Oliver out of the way, Mermaid was slated as the next major Disney release. And then I thought this was interesting right here. More money and resources were dedicated to Mermaid than any other Disney animated film in decades. The artistic manpower needed for Mermaid required Disney to farm out most of the bubble drawing in the film to Pacific Rim Productions, a China-based firm with production facilities in Beijing. So it basically, they had to outsource all the bubbles because there were so many. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fun thing about Walt Disney, him as an artist, he loved bubbles. If you go back and watch any of his movies that he he was involved with there was always like a weird bubble yeah. scene so this is something that probably was like really important to them because obviously oh. he was no longer with us anymore at that point so i'm sure that like with it being underwater especially having like good bubbles and like having like that cinematography involved in it probably was like heightened importance because of his like bubble fascination too, yeah, now, I would imagine. Yeah. Now you think about it in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, when they're washing up, there's a whole bunch of focus on bubbles in Cinderella. When she's rewashing the, uh, the stairs after Lucifer dirties it up, there's that bubbles and Dumbo there's bubble. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of bubbles. Same with jungle book. There's a bubble scene in that he loves bubbles and the re-release 
of this movie in 1997. The studio did it to try to combat box office numbers from Anastasia when uh, that movie, because it came out the same time. So they they re- they re-released Little Mermaid to try to sway moviegoers from seeing Fox's Anastasia and go re-see The Little Mermaid back in theaters. Yeah, that's true, because that's when the battle of the, the art animators, because didn't one of their top animators go over to the uh, Fox or something like that? And they did like The Land Before Time and The American Tale, and then they started competing with Disney. So that makes sense that they would re-release such a big hit to kind of take away the pieces of pie from Anastasia, which I still don't consider a, a Disney movie. Some people do because now Disney owns the rights, but uh, and it's on Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to you'll have to convince me about Anastasia, but that's a debate for another day. Because I want to finish up with this Disney wiki. It says now moving on to the music. It says the film contains ten songs in total, including three reprises with lyrics by Howard Ashman and a score by Alan Menken. His first Disney film he composed. A soundtrack was released for the film on October thirteenth, nineteen eighty nine. It was met with great praise and accolades. The soundtrack would be released in two thousand six as well. And then the reception. The Little Mermaid was released to Ray reviews upon its initial release. It quickly became a cultural phenomenon with many critics hailing it as a return to the quality filmmaking Disney animation was known for during the days of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Cinderella. It won a number of accolades specifically for its music, including two Academy Awards for Best Song and Best Score, two Golden Globes, and one Grammy, among others. Rotten Tomatoes reported that the film has a 93 certified fresh score based on 69 reviews with an average rating of 8.19 out of 10. It became the ninth highest grossing film of 1989 behind Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Batman, Back to the Future Part 2, Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, License to Kill, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and Lethal Weapon 2. The site's consensus reads, The Little Mermaid ushered in a new golden era for Disney animation with warm and charming hand-drawn characters and catchy musical sequences. And so with that, I think it is time for us to dive, pun intended, into the story of The Little Mermaid. So once upon a time, we're going to open up the book and start on our adventure into The Little Mermaid. And actually... Not quite yet. (laughs) We've opened the book, but I also want to give a little bit of real world background in addition to that, mostly on the life of Howard Ashman, who is a huge, huge asset to this movie, as well as Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And unfortunately, those were the only ones that he was able to work on because he lost his battle with HIV and AIDS. And unfortunately, the world lost great storyteller as well. And so the reason why I want to kind of bring in a little bit of Howard Ashman is because we had a listener write in, Michael O'Neill, and he wanted us to discuss the documentary Howard, which is on Disney+. And I figured since we were all going to kind of be discussing some of his movies to kind of weave in that documentary throughout this. I, I already discussed a little bit of his Beauty and the Beast era and a little bit of his background in the Beauty and the Beast episode. So I figure we can kind of weave in a little bit of his his Little Mermaid era into this episode as well. Yeah, I think that's super important. I think that's awesome. And I think it's really interesting that this whole theme of The Little Mermaid kind of mimicked what was going on in real life as well. It focuses on this individual that doesn't feel understood by those around them and therefore 
try to find a place in their world. And that kind of what was happening not only to Howard Ashman, but also the Disney animators as well, because they were focusing on the theme parks and they were focusing on TV and all these different live action movies and kind of the animation studio kind of literally got the boot. And in the biographical documentary about Howard Ashman's life, they talk about how Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the studio head of Disney at the time, he kind of courted Howard to kind of come to LA and work on The Little Mermaid because his friend David Geffen kind of introduced him to him and kind of said, this guy, if you want to reinvigorate your animated movies, this is probably the guy to do it because he had such a great run on Broadway with Little Shop of Horrors. And he was kind of in a funk at the time because he went on to his next project called Smile. And in the Broadway kind of circle, it was seen as a flop. So he was kind of trying to bring himself up out from that. And he was just wanting to get away from the Broadway circle because he felt like they turned their backs on him and he just wanted a new change of scenery. So it's funny because Jeffrey Katzenberg called during his his Seder and his sister was saying that it was almost like Elijah was the one on the phone because the timing of it was right in the middle of the Seder. There was this phone call, which basically was this ushering in a new era of Howard Ashman's life. And and unfortunately, it was the final era of his life, but he was able to bring such great beauty to the world in his storytelling. And like I said, the animation department was no longer the shining star it was during the life of Walt. They were actually relocated to warehouses off the lot. And so I thought it was really interesting to see how this movie, which talks about thrown away things or things that don't fit in, kind of finding their place in the world. And that's exactly what was happening to Howard Ashman and the animators at the time. Isn't it interesting too? Cause I, I know that he was picked up because of his work on little shop of horrors, both the movie and the musical live show. I think it's really interesting that they made this like potentially designed to become a musical for Broadway. And it has been one of the most successful live shows for Disney musical live, I think for Broadway production. So I think that's really interesting that they brought a Broadway person into the fold to get this movie up and going with Al Mankin and then for it to progress to what we know now as a Broadway musical on top of being a movie amongst other things. I think that really speaks to the creativity that was truly behind this film and the person, the people on the team that put this whole thing together. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And Howard Ashman also said that the last great place to do Broadway musicals is an animation. And I think this was even before he knew that he was infected with HIV, which eventually turned into AIDS. And he really put his life and his soul into The Little Mermaid. And then when he was diagnosed, he he wasn't diagnosed officially with HIV and AIDS because at the time it was still kind of like it was a death sentence and it was kind of a taboo that he was worried that if he tested positive for HIV, he, he would lose his insurance, which thinking about that now, that's just so devastating that you wouldn't take a test to determine whether your life was going to be cut short because you were afraid of not being able to live out your life healthily. And that's just so sad. And it's something that we really need to continue to work towards because there's certain things like trans medication and different sort of procedures that are needed in order for trans individuals to live their life healthily that we are still fighting today. So yes, we've come a long way since the stigma of testing positive for HIV, but it also reminds us that we still have a lot way to go as far as healthcare for people within the queer community. 
Yeah. And his sister said that the work really did keep him going and kept him believing and almost willing him to continue to live on and to work. And then it really came to fruition that this was something major that he was a part of when they were premiering at Disneyland and he went there and they had a parade dedicated to the premiere of The Little Mermaid. And he said, when I saw this parade, I burst into tears when I saw it because I just had the feeling this will live on after me. And so I really think that we owe a great debt to Howard Ashman and the beautiful storytelling that he blessed us with. And it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get more from him in his lifetime here. I I was surprised to go back and learn that it was only three movies that he gave us, but his influence lives on throughout the movies even to today. So I just want to thank Howard Ashman and thank him for the blessing of his storytelling and his songwriting and just being able to put into words and put on film what all of us queer people were feeling and are feeling and will feel. And so with that, now we can open the book on The Little Mermaid. And once upon a time, we start out in the heavens. And this this is a common theme between all of the Disney movies. A lot of them, we start off in the clouds from a heavenly perspective. And the first thing that I really thought of was Genesis 1 it automatically kind of made me think of God creating the heaven and the earth. And the first thing he did was he separated the heaven from the earth. And then there was waters upon the land. And in Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says, and the earth was without form and void and the darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And I feel like that's what we kind of do too, is we begin in these kind of darky murky clouds and all of a sudden we fly out of them out of the darkness and into the light, almost like what they're talking about, the Holy Spirit is going upon the waters. And we are joined by three seagulls and then three dolphins, which I thought was pretty funny, that kind of guide us towards this ship. And I thought they could represent from a spiritual perspective, they could represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Or they could also represent verse 3 in Genesis 1, which says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Because at that moment when they all congregate together, that is when the ship pounds through. That's when the light and the music reaches its crescendo. And that's where we're introduced to one of the heroes of this movie, which is Prince Eric. And then I also thought it was interesting. I'm, I'm going to be stuck on this number three for a little bit because I think numbers mean something. And wherever I can find meaning in numbers, I'm going to try and find meaning. But it also kind of could represent Genesis chapter three, which is when the serpent tempts Eve, much like how the sea serpents tempt Ariel. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And then not so much of a, of a spiritual take, but kind of more of a queer take. Those three seagulls and those three dolphins, it could represent the three stages of our queer experience, which is before coming out, during coming out, and then after coming out. And then we begin with the three seagulls and the three dolphins, but all of a sudden when we come down to the ship's level, we've still got the three dolphins, but we only have one seagull, which I think is the ushering in of act one, which is cueing Eric on the ship and the before Ariel's coming out. Eric is introduced and he has his best companion next to him, Max, and he's all bright-eyed and optimistic. And he's talking about how this is the best weather for him to kind of sail. And then that's when one of his fisherman friends says, a fine, strong wind and a following sea. King Triton must be in a friendly type mood. This is also kind of foreshadowing what is to come because King Triton's moods kind of dictate the sea. So right now he's in a good mood because we know later on that he's going to 
hopefully witness his the debut of his his daughter but we'll we'll get to that soon and eric is confused he's like king triton like he's never heard of king triton before and you think that if he was such a skilled fisherman or a skilled sea captain he would have heard it before but he hasn't and so the rest of the fishermen kind of explain to him what king triton does and that kind of reminded me of we're also introduced to Christ and his disciples, they're fishermen, they're on the ships and they're, they're meant to be fishers of men. And they're kind of explaining their teachings to him. And of course, Mr. Grimsby comes in and interrupts him and discourages him. He goes, Oh, don't believe that nonsense, which is kind of what happened. And what kind of happens to us as queer people of faith, when we try to reconnect or try to connect in general with our spirituality, there's always kind of like that naysayer that has to come in and say, Oh, that's fairy tales. Oh, that's just fairy dust. And that's just something that we have to come bat with. And I really think that Eric kind of handles that very maturely because he he's questioning it and he wants to know more. We don't get to really see the rest of the conversation because one of the fish kind of slivers out of the, the fisherman's hands and escapes his fate <laughs> of being on board that ship and kind of then introduces us to the ocean deep. And we're kind of, as he swims around, we're kind of seeing all the different beautiful fish-like creatures and sea anemones and all these different species of fish. And then we catch our glimpse of the mer people. We don't get to see them full on. We kind of see them in silhouette, which kind of piques our interest. And we see them all rushing to one specific area. And it's to the castle because we're going to find out later on that there's going to be this grand concert, which is the debut of, of Ariel. And everyone's rushing there because they all want to be a part of it. And it kind of reminded me of us quickly rushing to kind of our, our places of worship or our places of solitude whenever there's excitement or wherever there's going to be kind of like an announcement of something new or something that's going to happen. And even when we get into the brightly lit castle, I noticed that kind of like the concert hall was very reminiscent of the tabernacle at Temple Square, at least for the LDS faith. And it kind of looks like that same thing. Like there's this big organ there's this grand kind of stage and everyone is surrounding it kind of expecting to see something very magical happen. And then we are introduced to King Triton and he's pulled again by three, three dolphins. I think this time it's to stay in the theme of Tri, which is Triton because his crown has three points. His trident has three points as well. So I think these three dolphins kind of represent the the tri sort of theme within King Triton and everything that involves. And, and King Triton is kind of like a magical being in the in of his own self. Like he is kind of like the great protector of their culture. So like to have a leader or like all powerful being having a like celebration with all of the subjects around the ocean makes sense i mean that that makes sense to me just like you know in religion you gather together to give honor to the figure that you idolize so it makes complete sense to me that you know he would be like almost like this deity figure to the merfolk because he's keeping them safe and helping protect them and and all that with his power so i think it's a pretty pretty good simile to how we view religion for sure Yes, no, and I love I love that because then next is introduced Sebastian and he's pulled by two fish. Maybe it's because he's tinier, but I also think it's because it represents that he's kind of the second in command to King Triton and he also is his second hand man. And he kind of fulfills the role of his second set of eyes on Ariel as well further on in the film. So I think the significance of the two fish could be because he's number two in line after King Triton because he's his his royal advisor. 
And I love when he makes his way to the musical podium. I always love that like cinematography, like kind of like the clown car where he gets out of his shell. He's, you know, perched upon his musical podium and he like pulls out that giant music book with all of the pages and things just rolled up. And it like is bigger than what you think would come out of that shell because of, uh, you know, just the play on size in that scene. I think that's always really fun. <laughs> yeah. I, and, lo- I, I love Sebastian. He's he's one of the best characters in this movie. Yeah. And then he has this little aside, like King Triton is all excited about hearing Ariel speak. And then he kind of like mumbles under his breath. Yes. If she'd come to rehearsals every once in a while. So that's your first, <laughs> that's your first little hint at something's not all right or not all right there, but Ariel kind of like swims to her own kind of beat and, in her own kind of path. And it kind of lets you expect what's going to happen. And so what happens is they introduce the seven sisters, their seven sisters total, and they each kind of say their name and they all sing about being the daughters of Triton, great father who loves them and taught them well. And they each say their names. And I thought it was interesting that there's seven sisters and then the six before them are there and present, but on the seventh, there's no one there. But I also felt it was kind of fitting because in biblical terms, God rested on the seventh day. So of course, the seventh sister and the seventh voice is supposed to be resting because you have all these other six that came before them. So I don't think they should be too hard on Ariel because not only is she the youngest, <laughs> she's also the most free thinking, but she's the seventh. She represents the seventh day. And that's that's the time for us to rest. <laughs> For sure. Do you know? Can you name all the other six sisters? Do you know? I know names? there's Adrina, Aquata, yeah. Alana, yeah, Adina, Adela, Atina, Atina, yeah, mm-hmm. and then Arista. Oh, and then you were, you were I, close. I almost there. You, that was that was all six. You have Aquata, Andrina, Artista, Atina, Adela, Alana, and then and Ariel. Ariel. Yeah. And so and then, Ari. yeah. And it's like, ah. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember being so shocked that she wasn't there because I knew what happened when I didn't obey my father or my mother or my teachers. Like, you got a talking to. And King Triton's like, Ariel. And that's like his first, right? Kind of, you kind of see the, the mean daddy sort of come out. And like I was saying, that the seventh day is meant for resting. But that, of course, that's not what Ariel is doing. What is Ariel doing instead of being at his concert? You know, Ariel is wanting to explore her independence and she is out exploring the sea and her and her best friend Flounder, who is a fish that is with her and they are exploring a ship that is in like a graveyard, essentially a ship graveyard um, on the bottom of the sea floor. They're going through the wreckage and they're looking for things because Ariel has this fascination with the world above her. She wants to know everything about humans and why they exist and what they do and how they eat and walk and talk and fire and, you know, all that fun stuff. We'll talk more about that when we get to that scene. So she's going through the ship and she's trying to find all these treasures to take back to her treasure trove. And they run into a little bit of problems. Her desire for want, she's wanting to know more, but she's also kind of experiencing that independence that 
teenage mindset that we've all been in. And I don't have to do that. I'm going to go do what I want because I'm this person and I'm going to express my independence this way. And they think that everything is all hunky-dory. They're going through everything. And then out of nowhere are attacked by a shark (laughs) or a shark is trying to come after them. So they're able to escape and they make their way up to the surface with all of their found goodies inside the ship. Yes. And I thought that Ariel represents kind of our questioning nature as queer people of faith that simply because it's always been this way isn't good enough, especially when our hearts are telling us different. She seeks sources of information other than those dictated to her to get a fuller understanding. Even if that turns out to be wrong, she still explores other options. And exactly with like the shark, like her wanting to get more information came from an innocent place and she went about it in an innocent way. But sometimes that gets us into trouble. And she's lucky that she was able to advert this danger that happens, which she's been pretty lucky throughout her life, apparently, if she keeps going through these different shipwrecks. But it it also kind of is a word of warning to us, too, is to not be so naive about certain situations. Like, yes, we should learn more about certain things, but we should go about it in a safe way, because not only do we sometimes put ourselves in danger, but we can put those around us in danger. Because she was fine. She was the nimble. She could flip through things. It was flounder, the one that was most at risk. And so she was the one that had to continue to save. So we just need to remember that in our quest for knowing more than we know so far, we also need to remember that we have to do it in kind of a responsible and safe way, especially when we have those along for the ride. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we've all been in that situation where, you know, the armor you think is on you and you can just go through life and do what you need to do. And you're not going to have any repercussions whatsoever. And I think that she is kind kind of in that zone of I can do pretty much whatever I want, not only because I'm the king's daughter, but I'm inquisitive and fun and pretty and I'm, I can do whatever I want and no one's really going to say anything to me about it. And I think that that's going to come to bite her in the tail sooner than she thinks. So she makes her way up to the surface and we meet another really iconic character from the movie, Scuttle, the seagull. Yes, and I thought Scuttle represents kind of our queer elders or someone who is a little further on their journey than we are. And he thinks he knows it all, but most of the time he's wrong. There is times when he's right. We'll get to towards the end of the movie, but most of the time he's Mm -hmm. wrong. And upon seeing it again as an adult, I kind of noticed that he appears to be a loner himself or was he cast out from like the rest of the seagulls because he caused so much trouble? Like, I want to know the backstory on Scuttle. Like, why is he by himself? Why does he live on this kind of like shipwreck masthead? And where does he get all of this quote-unquote knowledge from? Does he make it up? Does he half listen as he's flying around? Like, I want to know more about Scuttle because, again, the whole theme of kind of the Little Mermaid is kind of things that have been cast away and are thought to have no value actually are some of the most valuable items within the, the universe that this takes place in. I kind of think about being like from a small town myself. Like I'm from a small town in Kentucky and have moved around to bigger cities, obviously, and had some different exposure. But I remember coming out and like thinking that I knew more than I knew because of something that maybe I read on, you know, the internet or had talked to like one of two other gay people that I knew growing up. And I think Scuttle kind of represents that in a way, like where it's like this small town, small world person is trying to gain answers. And 
And she'll just take the answer that he's giving because she has no other resource to go to or maybe doesn't feel comfortable asking. And obviously her dad is against her learning more about the human life. So this is like her kind of like dark web (laughs) way of trying to figure out an answer. And it may not exactly be what she thinks it is. That's kind of what she does when she shows him all the different items that she finds in the shipwreck and is trying to get him to explain to her what exactly these items would be used for so i kind of can kind of relate that to you know how you might try to get some answers from someone who maybe has more quote-unquote experience yeah and you mentioned him being the dark web but it could also be kind of like erasing the browser history and google of like the early days of the internet using your family computer like she's not going to learn about these human things from the people that she's around because they're told that they're this is forbidden that they shouldn't go anywhere near these that it's forbidden and it's dangerous and so that's kind of like us as like queer people and then queer people of faith like we're told that abstinence is the number one way to prevent any sort of sexually transmitted infection or pregnancy but we're not told what else is out there in addition to abstinence like when we do come of age and we do kind of leave our conservative sort of sheltered lives we don't know what to do and especially queer people of faith we're easy targets to people that want to take advantage of us and it really puts us at risk because we have absolutely no knowledge so i'm glad that ariel has at least someone that she can turn to and someone that she feels comfortable with and eager to gain knowledge from even if it's not correct and scuttle of course means no harm and tries their best to kind of encourage ariel's curiosity He wants to encourage her to continue to learn more and to continue to build upon her knowledge. So he's going to give her answers. So that way, when she finds some other new human contraption, she'll bring it to him. And at least he can kind of give her a safe source of information. So some of the items that Ariel brings to him is a fork, which we obviously use to eat with. And he suggests that the fork is a dingle hopper, which we use to comb our hair. The next item that she shows him is a pipe that you would use to, you know, smoke tobacco out of. And he refers to it as a snarf blot and an object for making music. So (laughs) he is kind of all over the board on these items and thinks he knows what he's talking about. But when he brings up the fact that the snarf blot, the pipe, can make music, to which he then blows bubbles out of it. Again, we're talking about bubbles. They are quickly reminded that she was supposed to perform today for King Triton's festivities and quickly rushes back home. <laughs> yes, yes, she's. I said she was filled with dread over disappointing her father and Sebastian. And this is kind of much like when we start to explore our authentic selves and get swept up in the feeling of freedom, only to then be faced with the idea of disappointment to those close to us who might not approve. Like she was so happy to get these answers and then the mention of music. She's like, music? oh no, the concert, that was today. And so so then she has to rush back. And at the same time that she's filled with this joy, she's now filled with this dread because she's not only is she going to be reprimanded for missing this important concert or this important event, but there's also the possibility of being reprimanded for going to the surface, which is forbidden. And then it's this whole roller coaster of, will she be outed? And so she has to hope that she'll only be reprimanded for missing the concert and that she could keep her authentic self to herself for a little bit longer until she's able to relay that to those that she'll feel most comfortable with relaying that too. Yeah. And and when you're trying to hide one lie and make up for another lie, that's when people can kind of get messed up. So don't lie. It's not worth it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so she's rushing home and as she's rushing home, we're about to meet some devilish characters. But before we do, I think right now is a great place to take a short break. 
And welcome back from the break. Scott and I have been discussing The Little Mermaid through our queer perspectives of people of faith. So Scott, I have a feeling that we have a lot to talk about today. So we might have to split this into two episodes like Beauty and the Beast, but it only seems fitting because this is another one of those classic Disney films that is part of the Disney Renaissance. So if it has to be two episodes, it has to be two episodes. Will Will you come back if we have to make two episodes? Oh, you know I'll come back. I love this movie so much, and I could talk about it all day, multiple days, into the late evenings. I would love to come back. So I'm going to hold that as a verbal Ursula contract, and I just saw you sign that scroll right there. So you are binding legal contract that you have to come back for part two if there is a part two. Oh, I'll give you my voice. Don't worry. And so she is just reminded that she missed this concert and she's afraid that she's going to be reprimanded for being late and also be outed for the fact that she is knee deep or fin deep in this human culture. And so on her way, she is not alone. And there's these two little eels that are off to the side kind of watching her. And they are also the eyes of another sort of character. And who is this character? Ursula. Ursula is, I think, one of the most iconic characters from this film. And we talked a little bit about the team that created this. And they took artistic direction for this character, for Ursula, based off of the famous, fabulous drag queen, Divine. So this very over-the-top, very voluptuous drag queen who was notorious for just being completely wild, known for her appearance in John Water films. And also Drag Race has mentioned her and done parodies on Divine a few times throughout their seasons. So if you're familiar with that franchise, you may have heard the name Divine, but that is who they base Ursula the Sea Witch off of. Yeah, and in the documentary Howard, they're talking about the design of Ursula, and she was originally kind of described as a Joan Collins type. And if If you're part of queer community, she's also a canon of the queer community as well. She's this high cheekbones, kind of very dramatic, very sculpted eyebrows and that sort of thing. But he was also, Howard Ashman was also presented a concept based on Divine, and that's the one he zeroed in on. And I know Disney has a history of queer coding their villains, and people think that Ursula kind of falls into that as well. But I think the only tie that she has to kind of the queer coding is the fact that she's based off of a queer person in the community. Because if you look at all the other female queer-coded villains, they're very high cheekbones. They're very fully covered up. They're this single older woman obsessed with this younger, supple little girl. And the only thing that Ursula really fits into that is that she's based off of Divine because she's not obsessed with Ariel. She's obsessed with her father, King Triton, and the means to get to Triton is through Ariel. And she's very voluptuous. She shows a lot of skin. She's actually pretty feminine. I think the only reason why she could be queer-coded is because at the time, this is like the early 90s where we're talking about this stick figure, heroin chic supermodel. She didn't fit the ideals of femininity at the time. She was voluptuous. She was quote unquote overweight. 
overweight. She was boisterous. She was loud. So I think that's where she could kind of be queer coded is because she was against femininity at the time. But I want to argue that that's kind of where it stops. Like she's not the traditional obsession with a younger girl because she wasn't obsessed with her. And she says that later on in the film that it's her father that she wants to get at. So I, yeah, she's, she's after the power. Yeah. Yeah. Power. And I think the another reason why she's queer coded is because she's such a fabulous character that the queer community has kind of adopted her and wants to emulate her and they want to have her camp and have her kind of beauty and have her boisterousness. So I, I, I think that she needs to kind of have her own category of queer coding because she doesn't fit in with the evil queen, Cruella, Maleficent, all those people. Like she doesn't fit into mm-hmm. that same category. She kind of has her own. And I think the reason what puts her to the forefront is because she was actually based off of a queer character in our community. Yeah, and the fun thing about her character too, and it's not expressed as much in the movie because it was left on the drawing room floor, but was picked up just mildly in the Broadway musical. When Ariel eventually meets Ursula, she refers to her as her aunt Ursula. And the original intention for Ursula in the movie was that she was going to be King Triton's sister. Little fun fact for you. Yeah, no, and I thought that too, because I went and did some research too, because there's there's definitely some history between them, and especially with his anger towards humans. And I guess as you read into the, the Disney lore and you kind of read about the prequels and stuff, that Ursula was either his sister or kind of his advisor at the time. And I think she mm-hmm. had something to do with the killing of Ariel's mother because she was struck or attacked by a pirate ship, which makes Triton hate the humans and therefore hate Ursula because she had a part in it but then there's also the kind of storyline where king Triton just hated his sister the only thing that kept her in the kingdom was ariel's mother which her name is queen athena so that brings us some greek mythology for you i don't know if she is athena no she's not because she's in the sea but that's just her name and so with her out of the way triton had no reason to keep ursula in the kingdom so he thrust her out so that's a little bit of a kind of a tangent that wasn't really built into the movie but kind of was built after in kind of like prequel and Disney lore and all that sort of stuff. Because you know there's some sort of tension and she mentions that when she used to live in the castle, she used to have all these lavish feasts and now she's literally wasting away to practically nothing, which is not true because she's still a pretty voluptuous woman. But you definitely can sense that there's some bad blood between them and Ursula is hell-bent on getting revenge on King Triton, whatever they did to each other. We do know that she was banished, but we don't know the reasons for that. Right, exactly. And another fun fact that I thought was interesting is her two little sidekicks, the sea serpents or the sea eels, their names are Flotsam and Jetsam. And when I looked up what that meant, because I knew that they it was something because I learned on Project Runway because Tim Gunn kept referring to things as Flotsam and Jetsam. I went and I looked at the definitions and it's useless or discarded objects. And I thought that fit into this theme of this movie and our discussion because throughout the film, it's a caution to what can happen when you treat people, fish or free walking, as useless objects that are just thrown to the side. And case in point is Ursula. She feels rejected. She feels thrown to the side, which is sometimes how we feel as queer people of faith when we're rejected by our religious institutions. And sometimes people who are rejected, they get the seed of revenge and it grows and it grows and it grows and it overtakes them to the point where they want nothing but revenge and they don't care who they hurt in the process. They'll hurt the aerials on their way to get to Tritons. They'll lose their flotsam and jets 
Metsum's on their way to get revenge on Eric and Ariel. Like we just need to be cautious when we are rejected from our institutions. Yes, the feelings of rejection and sorrow, there's a place for that, but we can't let it fester into this feeling of revenge that we see in Ursula because we we see in all the Disney villains that it just leads to their undoing. And therefore, if we follow that path, it'll lead to our undoing as well. Exactly. So she just is a complete kind of chaotic character. And I think the reason that she is also so well liked is her confidence. And I think that goes into the LGBT canon that like people who are LGBT sometimes don't feel like they have that confidence. And she just like oozes it. I would love, I know they just did the Cruella live action backstory movie, but man, I would love an Ursula live action backstory movie with some amazing actress to fill that role. I think that'd be so cool. Yeah, there's so much content and so much backstory. If they can do it for Melissa Fent and Cruella, of course they should do it for Ursula because that would be gangbusters. Yeah. It's something that we want and we need. Anything that makes that camp mainstream and and make it the focus, like she She's pretty much makes the the movie because she's the catalyst between act one and act two. And she really drives the story forward. But to have a whole movie focus on her, I think would just be phenomenal. So then we cut back to Ariel and she is in the courtroom with King Triton and she is being scolded by her father and Sebastian. And she seems kind of unfazed, <laughs> like this is just another one of his lectures until Flounder tries to step in and come to her defense. But he then unknowingly outs her. And then the conversation gets heated, much like what happens when we try to defend our authentic selves to our family and they aren't ready to hear it. Like a lot of words are thrown around, which I think could be derogatory in the human world, like barbarian. She's then forbidden to go to the surface, which is how she's wanting to explore her authentic self. And I think when we are forbidden to kind of explore our authentic selves, it becomes too much to bear as well. And we can really relate to Ariel in that moment where her bottom lip is quivering and she has nothing else to say because if she does, she's going to break out into tears and she doesn't want her father to see her in that state because she doesn't want him to blame her unhappiness on her seeking her authentic self. And I think us as queer people of faith can really relate to that because we don't want our authentic selves to be the reason people point to us as why we're unhappy. Because I know growing up, sometimes when I was in my lowest after after coming out, my mom would say, it's because you're following this path. It's because you're not active in church. And that, yes, that could be true to a point, but that wasn't the reason why I was unhappy. The reason why I was unhappy was me trying to find the harmony between my spiritual and my authentic self. And I think that's just what Ariel's doing. She's just barely become a teenager. She's still pretty much a child. She's not even of age. She's just barely 16. And so she's trying to deal with these very complex adult concepts. And the child comes out when it comes too much and she can't be held accountable for that because she is just that a child. And I think a lot of people, depending on their point in their journey are sometimes just children in their authentic selves and it can become too much to bear. So I really related to her in that moment. And then shortly after she was scolded and she flew away, King Triton feels remorse. And he's like, Oh, I was too hard on her, wasn't I? How many times have we not been there when our families did the exactly the same thing? Like after our fights we've had about like coming out or things that have to do with our authentic selves and we run away, we're never there to see the remorse that our, our family members feel. And I really think we should be a little easier on our family members going through these journeys with us because we're not there to see their sorrow. We're not there to own up to their mistakes. And I think if we can treat 
our family members more like Triton should have treated Ariel and Ariel should have treated Triton. I think we could avoid a lot of the things that are about to happen in this movie. Yeah. And I can relate to the scene in particular pretty intensely because I have a situation from my teenage years before I came out completely. I had a secret boyfriend, secret boyfriend, and my brother found out about it. It was a guy that went to a different school, but in the same county, he swam with us. He wasn't like a top tier swimmer, but he was still on the other school's team. And we had started to hang out and then things became more than just us hanging out. And I was starting to put together the pieces in my own life, but it was kind of like the same situation for Ariel. You know, she's going out and she's finding these things and she's meeting with someone like Scuttle, who is giving her pieces of information that he thinks is right. And she's trying to make an understanding of what is being told to her. And my brother confronted me about my secret boyfriend. And in the defense mode of myself, I denied it because I didn't want to face facts and I didn't want to be found out. And I was experiencing my independence as a young person does. And, you know, I think Ariel's kind of in the same position where she's kind of getting found out for her desire and want to learn about the humankind. And she just is going to avoid coming clean about what she actually is doing and doesn't want to disappoint her dad. But she also is inquisitive and wants to have her own independence. Yes, I think that's an experience that a lot of queer people of faith or queer people in general can relate to because I had a similar situation too where I first came out and I didn't want certain family members to know, one, because they were too young, like my two younger brothers, or two, because I just wasn't sure how they would react, namely my sister. And I kind of hid that from her and she would kind of ask me questions in certain ways that if I answered it, it would get the answer that she was looking for. Since then, we've become close, closer than ever. I think she's one of the siblings that I'm most close to. But at the time, like, yeah, I was hiding this thing from her because I didn't want to come out right and say it because I didn't want her to change her view of me and I didn't want her to treat me any differently. And also, I just I wasn't ready to kind of leave my old life behind because I was still figuring out this new life and how I was going to fit into it and how spirituality was going to fit to as well. So I didn't want to answer any questions I didn't have the answers to. And I think that's kind of what Ariel is too, is she's trying to figure out her authentic self and trying to see how that fits in with her life right now. And she's just figuring things out. I think right now she could be in a way, it could be a depiction of her kind of questioning her sexuality because she doesn't come right out and say, I'm queer or daddy, I love him until further on. And that's kind of like her coming out. So right now she's still trying to figure things out. She's never seen a human yet. She just knows of them and she just knows of their culture and, and kind of knows of their things. So right now she's just got this fantasy in her mind of what meeting a human could be like. And so she doesn't want to answer any questions that she doesn't have the answers to because then that could also discourage her from pursuing any more knowledge because they could catch her on those questions and they can say, see, you don't know anything about this. It's dangerous. You shouldn't pursue this any further. Right. So Ariel in her upset state makes her way to her grotto with all of her human found items that she keeps hidden away in secret from her father and Sebastian and her sister's. And this is when we get the most iconic song from this movie, I have to say. I mean, Part of Your World is probably the most 
iconic song of any princess Disney movie for me in my childhood. And you can go pretty much anywhere to any karaoke bar in any gay neighborhood. And someone is going to try to sing this in that evening. <laughs> yes, probably me. Because this is my go-to karaoke song. Because even if I can't see the words or I can't find the pitch, I know every single word to this song. I know every inflection. I know every choreographed movement of like flipping around and like walking down the what do you call those oh streets like i know all of that <laughs> and so i just love it and in the words of jody benson who's the voice of ariel she says part of your world is a monologue put to pitch which i think is the perfect way of describing it because that's what it is is this is the archstone of this movie because Howard Ashman, one of his philosophies for storytelling is he says, your lead character needs a want. They need to have a strong want and a want song. And this, I'm sure you know, this song was almost cut from the film because when they tested it, this was the wiggle song. Like if they put on a slow song without much visuals, the kids would start to wiggle, they'd lose their audience, and then they'd have to cut that song. And so they said that they were self-described or self-proclaimed wiggle detectors. And when this song came on, they're like, this has to go. And Howard Ashman was like, over my dead body. And I'm so glad he fought for it because this is now the epitome of his storytelling. And this is what the rest of Disney was based off of, was this moment of how to display a want and a need and a desire and how we can relate to it as an audience member. And we get it in every movie after that. It's from Let It Go. It's from Belle. It's the reprise of Belle. It's all these things talking about the wants and the needs that the audience can relate to. And I think us as queer people of faith, we can find so much relatability in this particular song. Yeah. And like even the cinematography of this, like I think that it was like so well done because from you could feel every word that Jody Benson sang as Ariel throughout this movie or throughout the song, you could feel the body of Ariel all the way from her head and her flowing hair down to her fin, just the emotion and desire to want to feel the independence, to want to be able to experience what is happening on the shores of the human world and just want to be a part of it. And I think that this is like such a pivotal moment for Ariel and it's such a great song. And it's like I said, it's iconic people all over the world in every karaoke bar, every single night, I'm sure get some sort of request for part of your world. It's, it's truly fantastic. Yeah, even from the very first lines where she's like, maybe he's right. Maybe there is something the matter with me. I just don't see how a world that makes such wonderful things could be bad. And I'm like, how could a queer person, especially a queer person of faith, not relate to these opening lines? I think it's probably the first time our thoughts and feelings were voiced in a way that we could understand, but at an age where we weren't sure quite what we were understanding. Because I know as a kid, I was like, yes, Ariel, I'm right there with you. But I wasn't sure why I was right there with her. But I knew she was speaking the truth. Yeah. And then, you know, the crazy part about this whole thing is then it kind of relates back to my story that I was talking about before. Sebastian, like, barrels in at the end of the song and discovers her grotto that she's been hiding away. And he's threatening to reveal it to King Triton and basically out her for her desire to learn more about the human race. And she is just overcome with fear and doubt and trying to backtrack. And I see that moment 
And I know what that feels like of someone trying to basically force you out of something. People who are forced out of the closet because of circumstances in their lives. Like this is a moment that like you fear, you know, the the day that you get found out without your time frame that is not how you anticipate it. And she is definitely devastated by Sebastian's discovery of this grotto, but they are quickly alerted of the humans being close by because they have a large object floating above them and they see the fireworks. So Ariel decides to swim up to the top and figure out what's going on. Yeah. And before before we get to that, I kind of want to backtrack and, and spend a little more time in part of your world because it really is kind of like her prayer up to whatever deity she worships to help her understand. And I really want to emphasize that, yes, the, the title is called Part of Your World, but in this whole majority of the song, she wants to be part of that world. And I know she gets a lot of beef and baggage about giving up her voice and her le- or her fins or whatever for a man to be part of his world, but she hasn't met a human yet. And so this is just her desiring to be part of that world. So that's really what her want is, is to be part of that world. And another thing too, that she's talking about is she goes, I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those. What do you call them? Oh, feet flipping your fins. You don't get too far. Legs are required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down the, what's the word again? Street up where they walk up where they run up where they stay all day in the sun wandering free wish I could be part of that world and she makes it clear that all the physical monetary objects that she has don't fulfill her as much as new experiences and knowledge will and I think us as queer people faith only nurturing our spiritual selves isn't enough or the fulfillment we truly need as individuals we want more we need more we we need to find what our authentic self could fit in that and then Ariel much like queer people of faith we sometimes overextend our expectations of the world that we're longing for and she goes what would I give if I could live out of these waters what would I pay to spend a day warm on the sand? Betcha on land, they understand, but they don't reprimand their daughters, bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. And little does Ariel know that on land, they do in fact reprimand their daughters, sometimes even more so than they do in the sea. I think us as queer people of faith, we put too much into the thought of the queer community welcoming us with open arms the moment we come there, because that's not always the case. Like sometimes when we come out as queer people of faith into the queer community, there isn't always welcome arms for everyone and not everyone is treated equally. But these are definitely things that we as queer people of faith and Ariel can work towards. She can work to towards equal treatment of women once she gets up there and the reprimanding can stop. And then we as queer people of faith can work towards the full equality of those around us within the queer community and within the spiritual community. And then Ariel's ballad, like I said, slowly turns into a soft prayer and she's almost kind of not believing it anymore. She kind of becomes discouraged because she's like, is this too much to ask? Cue Sebastian. And you already kind of touched upon that of how she's outed to Sebastian without meaning to. And so she gets super scared. And this is sometimes what happens when we are unsure or unready to come out to certain individuals. And then they are interrupted by the ship. And I think it's really fitting 
that the first real sighting she has of the humans is that there's music, there's dancing, there's celebration, because that is often the first interaction we have in the queer community. And we can really relate to this feeling of awe and excitement that she has. And this is Eric celebrating his birthday. And then something that I think is really interesting is Max's greeting, Max the dog. It's the perfect greeting because he can sense there's a newbie in his midst and he greets her with a loving kiss. It is really true, especially for the queer community. I mean, when you first, you know, decide I'm going to make that step out. The first thing I did when I decided that, you know, being gay was something that I wanted to, you know, explore more of. I was in Orlando working at Disney and I went to Pulse for the first time. And I remember just being like, I got really dressed up with my friends and we all went out with my roommates and people that I worked with at Disney and in the parks and things. And I remember just the like eyes wide open, like taking it all in, like so many things happening. And that can definitely give you like that. Is this what it's like? Is this, is this what goes on? And I can definitely understand why Ariel would feel like this is an exciting experience, maybe a little overwhelming of an experience, but it would definitely give her that inquisitive desire to want to know more. Yeah. And I love how you said that it's a little too overwhelming for Ariel because she also kind of watches from the shadows. And when Scuttle makes kind of a bit of noise, she kind of quiets him down because she just wants to observe at the moment because this is the first time she sees a human and she's still kind of evaluating if she wants to interact with them or if it is in fact dangerous. And also she's just in awe because Ariel is 16, as we've discussed, and she's kind of at the age of her sexual development and her sexual awakening. And her sexual awakening really occurs when she sees Eric. And when I saw this, I was like, I'm sure almost every gay boy had their sexual awakening when they first saw Eric as well, because I sure did. And I wasn't sure what it was when I was a little boy, but I knew when I saw Eric, I wanted to keep looking. (laughs) I mean, Eric is a very handsome Disney prince. They did a very good job on depicting Prince Eric, for sure. The young gay men and straight cis women feeling a very specific kind of way about him. Yeah, he's got that deep V and then that nice little clavicle, like defined chest. Like you're like, oh, Eric, <laughs> I I know exactly what Ariel saw in you. Exactly, exactly. Well coiffed hair. I mean, yeah, he looks like the total package for sure. Yeah, and so the celebration on the ship is for his birthday. And it's quickly revealed that there's pressure on him by Grimsby, kind of like the Debbie Downer of the ship. But then he, he gets happier towards the end of the film. There's pressure by Grimsby and the kingdom to get married. And I feel like us as queer people and queer people of faith, we also are pressured to kind of follow these societal norms when it comes to marriage, even after we come out. I don't know how long after I came out, my mom kept asking, have you met a girl yet? Have you had to do a girlfriend? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? And even sometimes my family members were asking when I'm going to settle down and get married. At this point, they've kind of given up and they kind of don't talk about that subject, which is another discussion in itself. But I think us as queer people of faith and queer people, we get these same pressures to get married. Like you're at an age where you need to get married. Why haven't you settled down right now? And I think Eric is kind of feeling that at the moment. And he defends himself by saying he'll get married on his terms and he'll know when he's found the right person because he'll hit him like lightning and cue the lightning. Cue the lightning. And who's waiting in the shadows but our girl Ariel. (laughs) Yeah. And we should note that his big present that Grimsby gives him is a giant statue of himself and he then states that he wishes that this was going to be a wedding present and not just a birthday present. So, you know, he's excited to receive this giant statue of himself, which is also interesting. 
and awkward too because it, I think it's kind of like those family heirlooms like your grandmother's ring where they're like this will be yours as long as you find the right girl to kind of propose to and you're like grandma I'm not going to propose to a girl like it's that sort of awkward sort of gifts where you're like thanks for the thought but I really wish you would have run it by me first sort of thing right. so I think that also makes it awkward and then the storm is causing the lightning so that's the lightning it's kind of like a playoff of words you go strike me like lightning and it is this huge storm and I think that this storm is brought on by Triton still kind of being angered with the fight he had with Ariel. Because if you think back to what the fishermen said earlier, they said that the moods of Triton kind of dictate the ship. So I think this is also an example of no matter how much we disagree with someone's destiny, our actions can unknowingly play a part in helping them reach it. So Triton could be throwing a fit right now, not knowing that this storm will be the reason Ariel and Eric meet and then therefore set into motion the rest of the film. So it's I think it's just a word of caution out there that if you don't agree with someone's actions, you should just let them live their life because if you try to interfere in any way, more like than not, you're going to help them achieve their goals or their destiny faster than if you were to kind of like mind your own business. Right, exactly. Getting back to kind of like a queer kind of spiritual sort of aspect, I sort of see Eric becoming a Christ-like figure in this period of time because he is there to kind of help guide the ship through the storm, trying to calm the storm. He ends up kind of saving everyone on ship to the point where he even sacrifices his life to go back and save the lost sheep or the lost sheep dog, which is Max. This is an example of Christ kind of sacrificing himself and always coming back to us, even if we don't appear to fit in. Like the fact that Max was a dog and not a human. Didn't matter to Eric. And this is kind of like Christ not caring that we're queer. He'll still come back for that lost sheep. He'll still come back for us in our times of need. And he sacrificed himself for us, no matter our sexual orientation. And we just need to kind of remember that too. And that's kind of what Eric is doing is like no man dog left behind. And he literally sacrifices his life because we could even say that he died for a period of time until he came back to life on the beach. And then Ariel kind of steps in as the kind of the good Samaritan role where she sees this human, which she is told to fear and to kind of avoid. If she doesn't help him, he will die. And so she does the Christ-like thing and she saves him, which is kind of what the Good Samaritan did, which then kind of leads to her bringing Eric on the beach. He's presumed dead, but then a breath of air comes out and you, the reprise of Part of Your World, where now the words are your world. And I think Part of Your World is my favorite song in the whole movie, but I think my favorite portion of it is this reprise because because she says, what would I give to live where you are? What would I pay to stay here beside you? What would I do to see you smiling at me? Then she goes, where would we walk? Where would we run? If we could stay all day in the sun, just you and me, and I could be part of your world. And I think that's something that queer people kind of think about too, is they finally found this person that they feel kind of completes them or they have this connection with that they've never felt before. And now they're trying to figure out how do we fit into this crazy world or how do we make our experiences coincide with one another, especially for queer people of faith. Like if you just remember the first time you had these feelings for someone of the same gender, you're excited and you're fearful and you're trying to figure out how can I make this work? Because everything around me is telling me it shouldn't. And so I really love these lyrics because that is exactly what Ariel's saying. And she goes, now that I've met this human, there's no turning back. How do I make this work? Right. And I think too, with like the LGBT world and people being very cautious about like how they are 
expressing themselves. I think a lot of times too, like for me, I can relate to this in this experience. My family hasn't been incredibly inclusive. And I can imagine like myself that coming out to my family and other people coming out to their families may be a difficult experience for them. And sometimes they wait until they meet like the one or the person they feel like is going to ease your family into acceptance. And I kind of feel that Ariel is feeling that way with Eric that, you know, she's found someone who is caring, compassionate, you know, strong, is a powerful person in their community And if she decided to pursue understanding the human world more, that he might be a good vessel to give a second layer of understanding to her family, you know, back home in Atlantica. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into the second part of the reprise, because the first part was she's questioning. And then once she's like, no, this is something I've got to pursue. Like I've got a taste of it and I want more and I want to feel what it feels like to be human. She goes, I don't know when. I don't know how. And I love this part. She goes, but I know something's starting right now. <laughs> Watch and you'll see. Someday I'll be part of your. And then, of course, every gay boy within five feet of a rock in a in a wave pushes up and says, part <laughs> of your world. It's like this splashing. It's like this sexual. Splashing and the hair is going. Yeah. And she's like, I'm alive now. Yeah. And so she's like, I think that's the excitement and the confidence that we feel once we kind of realize this is who I am. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to pursue. This is what I want to learn. Like, I think we have that confidence of queer people of faith to kind of take it to the next level. Like, I think that's her understanding her sexuality. Like she wants to pursue this, even though people might say it's wrong or people might make it hard for her to pursue. This is something that she's going to go for. And there's nothing that's going to really stop her. And I think that's us as queer people and queer people of faith. When we realize that there's no turning around we don't know when, we don't know how, but something's starting right now. Watch and you'll see. Someday I'll be part of your world and I'll be a full version of myself in that world. And I think that's a really great bit of advice that we can give queer people out there too, is to continue to hold on to your convictions and to remain part of this world that you want to be a part of and be your true and full self. Like You can be a spiritual being and you can be an authentic being and there's no choice between the two. It's going to be kind of a tough road, but it's possible. And I I think that's the enlightenment that Ariel gets right in that moment. I think that's us as queer people of faith. We can have that enlightenment as well. So Scott, unfortunately, I have Sebastian tapping on my shoulder that it's time for me to go off to rehearsal for my debut. So this is going to have to be a two-parter. So I still have that scroll handy and I saw that you signed your voice away. So I am expecting you to come back for part two of The Little Mermaid. So you still into that? I sure am. Is my contract good for about seven days? It's three. Count them. Three. three. Oh, no. Three. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, no, listeners, make sure to keep your ears and eyes out for part two of The Little Mermaid because we had so much to talk about that we're going to have to cut it into two pieces. And listeners, thank you for listening. And the last thing we have to do is to remind you that it's a world of hope. In the holy house of mouse. Until next time, see you real soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Fairy Gospel. Fairy Gospel is a Love is Spoken Queer production and an unofficial Disney podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, send us an email to fairygospel at gmail.com or direct message on Instagram. We're at fairy underscore gospel. 
You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching at Fairy Gospel, one word. Feel free to share the love by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and make sure you're subscribed while you're at it. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Bye.